Before I begin the talk this evening, I'd just like to bring your attention to the uh, schedule for tomorrow morning, just in case some of you by any chance aren't here at the end of the the last sitting tonight. Tomorrow morning, in the uh, period before breakfast, as it's the last day of the retreat, and there is a... uh, a talk from one of the coordinators and also from myself about some of the practical aspects of the retreat and particularly to do with things that it's important that you're aware of at the ending of the retreat. And so it will be at 7.15 before breakfast or possibly, let me check, yes, 7.15. And we ask you all to please attend. So if for any reason you're not already in the hall at the... uh, um, morning yoga session, please do come along at 7.15 and uh, come and hear what uh, we would like to speak to you about. That's for those on the group retreat. Uh, anyone who's here on long-term retreat, that doesn't apply to, I guess. That's clear. So this evening what I'd like to speak about is really the the subject of insight. We talk about insight meditation. What is it that we are interested in understanding? And essentially what we are concerned with understanding is the way things are. How the actuality, the truth of life is. We talk about cultivating calm, and insight, samatha vipassana. Samatha is calm, vipassana is insight. And together the two are a vehicle for allowing us to see what is true. When we are not clear, when we don't see accurately, truly, the nature of experience, what tends to happen is that our actions, the way we live our life, is out of harmony with life itself, in conflict with it, in reaction to it. And it leads to suffering. It leads to a degree of suffering that is really not required. Although there are challenges in life, no doubt, and this cannot be taken out of life, there's a way in which understanding truly the nature of things transforms our experience of life. And true wisdom is that which, when we act on it, has the effect of reducing suffering and bringing it to an end. So, in this practice, we're concerned with seeing what's true. And if we reflect upon our lives, what we may notice is that we don't often take the time to really look, to really see what's going on. And because of that, we tend to often misperceive. We don't see clearly. That misperceiving leads to suffering. There was an interesting experience I had some number of years ago now 
When I was sitting meditating at home one uh, morning in February, I think it was, and it was a cold, frosty morning, and at the end of my period of meditation, I opened my eyes and looked out through the window or at the window in front of me, about, I guess, six feet, two metres away. And on the windowsill, I saw the snail, a very sweet little image just straight up there in front of me as I opened my eyes. And as sometimes happens with one's mind, seeing the image, my mind started to think about it. There was a snail. I thought, how did it get in? And it was actually very quick for my mind to figure out how it got in. The window was open. That's how it got in. Um, Despite the fact that it was a very cold night, I'd left the window open because, in fact, the the paintwork on the window had been peeling. And so it was getting waterlogged and swelling up and jamming, so it wasn't working properly. So I had to trim it with a plane and then paint it. And I couldn't close it because the paint was fresh. So that sort of all just went through my mind. And I'm like, oh, that's what's happened. So this uh, snail's come in through the open window. And I thought, why is it coming? What's it doing in here? It's not a place for a snail, my bedroom. And uh, then it occurred to me, of course, it's really cold out there. It's frosty. Snails don't normally live in that condition. Probably it would die if it didn't come in. And then I thought, but there's nothing for it to eat here. It's going to die in here. And I was really concerned. And all the while I was watching this snail and it's you know delicate spiral shell with the little brown markings and the two little beady eyes on stalks sort of waving around and just this whole sense of gosh what a predicament what a dilemma this creature is in what shall I do I was sitting here thinking what shall I do sitting there if I put it back outside it's going to freeze if I keep it in here it's going to starve and then suddenly an idea occurred to me I know I'll take it to my neighbour's greenhouse it's quite warm there's plenty of food I didn't think too much about what my neighbour might say but I was just really relieved and so I got up from my cushion and reached towards the snail which turned out to be a wood shaving (laughs) a little curled up piece of wood and a moment when I realised that the snail who I'd been concerned about and whose problems I'd been trying to solve didn't exist. Something just sort of quite softly and yet powerfully dissolved. And I was left in that space which we sometimes encounter when we realise, ah, what I thought was true was not. And yet it was so compelling. It was so compelling to me, that experience of the snail. I'd seen its little eyes. I'd felt for its life. And it was never there. It was never there. In meditation practice, we examine our experience because mostly in life, we're in such a rush, we're so busy, there's so much going on, there's experience flooding in through the eyes and the ears and the nose and the mouth and the body and the mind that we don't really pay attention to it. We just kind of try and navigate through it. And because we don't really pay attention, we don't see it. 
We don't recognize how it is. So in practice we are asked to look at the way things are and as we pay attention we start to see. The Buddha spoke in his teachings again and again of three major misperceptions, kind of mistakes that we make in our understanding of what's happening that lead us to suffering, that lead us essentially to grasp at or to resist our experience and get caught in the cycles of suffering that result from that or those patterns of reactivity. The first misperception that the Buddha pointed out, that he spoke of again and again and again, he said, we tend to see things which are changing and impermanent as somehow being permanent or fixed or unchanging. We tend to relate to them as if they're always going to be this way. And this is so common. Of course, none of us, if asked, would be surprised or would would have any difficulty observing that, yes, of course, things change. Things don't stay the same. We can look at our bodies. We can look at our world. We can look at a, a building over a period of time or a plant. We see that it changes. And yet we don't actually live in accordance with that understanding because we haven't necessarily seen it clearly or seen it truly and fully. So much of what goes on in our meditation, let alone our lives, is because of the habit of assuming things will continue as they are. When something's difficult, we encounter pain in our body. Often the pain itself is, surprisingly, it's painful, but it's not that bad. Because, you know, it's just happening, we're here. But what becomes really difficult is the thought, what if it keeps going like this? What if it's always this way? What if it's never going to end? And we get caught up in a struggle with it, not with the experience, but with the imagination of its continuity. And we're imagining sort of being sort of transported out of Guy House in an ambulance at the end of the sitting. So, uh, uh, you know... Like it's come to some horrible end. And yet, all experiences that arise pass. Likewise, when pleasant experiences come, we've noticed, we've observed and reflected on the tendency to try and take hold of them. To try and keep them or maintain them. And that comes out of an idea, a belief, a very deeply rooted belief, that it would be possible to keep something. It would be possible for something to last, to stay, to be permanent. And yet, it's not possible. All experiences arise and pass. All situations we encounter are in the process of changing into something else. If we really see this, it speaks to us about letting go, about not holding on to experience. And equally it speaks to us about letting be, not resisting experience. Because we see, why hold on to something that's inevitably going to change? Why resist something that is equally going to only be temporary? It's very powerful in the meditation when we start to notice difficult conditions that seem to be permanent or solid and see that in fact they're not. That there are moments and places where that's not what's happening. That difficult experience, feeling, thought pattern or body sensation that we might struggle with. 
When it's not there, we start to puncture the sense of solidity. So we notice the presence of experience and equally at times the absence of it. We notice what's not here equally as what is. And yet it's, it's not easy to really allow the sense of change in because it can unsettle us. We can feel a little bit like, just a moment, I'm not sure I like that. And yet it's how it is. Our experience is constantly changing. There's a, a beautiful stanza from the Diamond Sutra, one of the, uh, one of the teachings of the, the later Mahayana Buddhist tradition, which speaks of this. And it says, Thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lantern, a mirage and a dream. And that series of images of these transient things, these moments, I find it very powerful, evocative. That sense of every time, each one is just momentary. And that really stands out to us. And when we let ourselves feel that, there's something in that that can be both unsettling but also it speaks to us of something quite remarkable. Something that in our heart may touch us. And the fact that things change doesn't mean we shouldn't engage with them. It means we need to engage with them wholeheartedly, but understanding that they're not forever. Seeing that they're not forever. And because they're not forever, we can't expect to be able to control them or to get them to be the way we want them all the time. And this leads to the second major misperception that the Buddha pointed out and spoke about again and again. He said, we tend to see things which are not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction as being capable of doing that. It's like we invest in experiences, in situation, in situations, in people, in possessions, in meditative attainments or yogic attainments, as if when I get this thing together, or make it happen, or possess it, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be at peace. Then my life will be fulfilled. Whether it be a relationship or a profound spiritual experience, or just a bigger house, or a newer car, or a nicer wardrobe. Whatever it might be. That sense of how we invest in things. Hoping that they will somehow do it for me. It comes out of a belief that there's something out there that can do that. And that that's what things are for or people are for, or situations are for, or experiences are for, to somehow give us lasting satisfaction. And yet, they don't. We see that 
in the end, because they don't last, because nothing's permanent, nothing can do it for us in a permanent way. And again, the wisdom of this is to see, ah, it doesn't make sense to try and hold on to this experience of life or to what it's revealing. William Blake wrote of this in a poem that I think very beautifully expresses the skill and wisdom of life in this regard. He said, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. And it's, it's just, a, for me, just such a, a beautiful, succinct teaching. Like, if we try and take hold of something that gives us joy, that we love, that we appreciate, if we try and bind ourselves to it, it destroys the winged life, the, the, the freedom of movement, the fluidity, the ability for it to fly, to just move naturally as life does. If we try and hold on to it, we destroy that. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. To be able to make intimate contact with those things of beauty, of preciousness, of delight, that give us joy, that, that sense of the kiss, that, that intimate but fleeting contact, not trying to hold, you know, the difference between Kissing something and biting onto it and trying to hold on with our teeth. You know, it's, it's quite a remarkable difference, isn't it? And yet that touching in that way, to kiss the joy as it flies, is to live on in eternity's sunrise. <coughs> the dawn of the timeless, the dawn of the timeless is revealed. Eternity sunrise, in that ability to just touch, really wholeheartedly, and yet knowing that it's just for this moment and not for more than that. This is what we learn to do in practice. We see our habit of taking hold and we learn to let go. We see our habit of resisting and we learn to let it be. And yet, really being willing to be present and intimate with our experience. The third major misperception that the Buddha spoke of again and again was the tendency we have to see things which do not have separate or inherent self-existence as having that. We tend to see as self, as separate and independent, ourselves and others and things, conceiving and imagining that things or people could somehow exist apart from, independent from, separate or removed from everything else. And things 
including people and everything else, do not exist in this way. But this is how we imagine or conceive most of the time things to be. And we're asked to look and to consider what's really the truth of the experience. This sense of existence that we cling to as ours, as mine, as me, the possessor of it. And that when we do so, we equally attribute to others and to things some kind of solidity that is independent from other things, from everything else. That sense of me that has, as its inevitable, partner, you or that, us and them, that creates a separateness and a division in a universe where that does not truly exist. And yet where it appears, it appears. This is the appearance, the surface appearance. Just as it appears that things don't change because if we just look at them casually, in fact, you know, things seem to be you know, same thing I put down here a moment. Well, actually, watch is not such a good example because it has changed, but uh, lots of things appear to not be changing. They look, you know, they look, it's much the same as it was 10 minutes ago, I guess. And yet it's not, of course, is it? This body, this mind. What if we look at the sense that we have and starting primarily with the sense of ourself, of who we are or what we imagine ourselves to be? Because we don't, we're not really encouraged to question that too much. Or to, you know, we sort of think, who am I supposed to be? Or what am I supposed to be? Or how am I supposed to be? And we can come up with some pretty long lists of all the things and ways that we're supposed to fulfill that who we are or what we are supposed to be. And yet we don't necessarily stop and just wonder, well, what is this me that I'm assuming is there to become someone? Or to be in a certain way. What is that? If we look at directly our experience, what is it that we find? This experience of what we call life is a process. It's a process that's in relationship to an infinite array of different other processes. And... Ultimately, all experiences depend on conditions. All things arise according to conditions. We can only be here because, among other things, our parents came together and conceived a child. And for the last number of years since then, there's been enough food. And we haven't sort of faded away. And that we happen to have been born on a planet that supports this kind of life. There's, so we need water and warmth and all these things that our existence relies upon, depends upon. And if we start to look carefully at this experience, we see not only is it conditional, dependent on many things, and changing constantly, because all things are, if we really start to look, what do we find? There's 
sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts and emotions. And that's pretty much all we can find in our experience. Probably you've noticed, or maybe you've had opportunity to notice over these days, that when we turn our attention within, what we find is sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts and feelings. And there's not really much else we can really point to and say, yeah, that's there. We can sometimes notice an absence of things, but in terms of what's really here, that's what it is, it seems. And yet, all of those experiences are simply appearing, being known, being received, recognized, cognized, we could say. And within it, there's a sense of somehow, it's me. I'm doing it, or it's happening to me. They're mine, all of those experiences. And yet, that very thought is just another one of those thoughts. And we've already seen that most of those thoughts passing through our minds aren't really that reliable or useful. And we've probably actually spent quite a bit of time thinking, actually, I wouldn't mind if that all just, you know, quietly shut up. And yet, this thought that says, it's me, and I want all those other thoughts to go away, that's just another thought. What gives it the authority for us to assume that it's telling the truth? Where is the body that you had 10 years ago? Or 20? Where is it? Think it's been archived somewhere? You know? And go back and look, you know, Helen was mentioning, you know, we used to have a, what we thought was the body we wanted, you know, but it's gone, isn't it? That youthful body, that young body. It doesn't take long, I think somewhere in the early 20s and we start to notice that hmm, it doesn't quite work as well as it used to. And it's all downhill from there. And that's just the body. Mildly embarrassing. But the mind, where's the mind that you used to have? And where is the body that you're going to have? Do you think it exists somewhere? Waiting for you to collect it in ten years' time? Very little of what this physical form includes will exist in ten years. Just a few structures in the bones and a few sort of uh, neurons, mostly. But pretty much everything else in this body will have gone and been hopefully replaced by something new looking pretty similar but not quite and that's just the body look at how fast our mind changes look at in the space of one day how many different thoughts feelings, mind states how it can feel like it's great in one moment and terrible in the next confusing in the moment after and plain sailing two minutes after that and seeing all of that There's nothing in it that we can really take hold of and say, that's me. You know, how many thoughts have you had today? Have you got any idea? Like hundreds, if not thousands of thoughts. And all of them seem to cluster around, or most of them, seem to cluster around the sense of of me. And yet, if we were to question that, if we were just to look out and say, well, what is that? What's going on? We 
imagine or conceive ourselves to be something that is constructed out of our ideas and beliefs out of ourselves about ourselves based on experiences of the past and projections into the future images and roles that we may have accorded to ourselves how we've seen ourselves how we've been seen the functions that we've had in our lives the particular preferences and habits and qualities that we may associate with ourselves the way we may talk about our history as we remember it or our future as we imagine it and all of that kind of gives an un sort of a generally unexamined sense of yeah that's me that's who i am But if we see ourselves as this, there's something profoundly unsatisfying about it. Because we see that all those things we point to, they're somehow limited. They're certainly temporary. And we can't seem to gather them into an acceptable and stable shape. Which, if this was really me and who I was, wouldn't it make sense that at least I could kind of get it the way I want it? I mean, what's the point of owning something if it doesn't do what you tell it to? I mean, we think of you know owning this body. Sometimes it does. Well, you know, we can tell it to get up, go for a walk, have a glass of water. But the the most primary and profound aspects of what this body is doing—that it's breathing, that it's involved in maintaining homeostasis, maintaining the body temperature and maintaining all these balances of certain um, essential elements within the cells. This ongoing process of making sure that this very delicate instrument doesn't get out of sync, out of balance and just grind to a halt. All that is doing quite by itself. The heart is beating. You know, we can choose to put food in our mouth but when we put it in, the system just digests it. And it as you know, puts it where it wants it. Not where we want it. You know, If we think I can eat some food and make it appear here where I need a bit more and not there where I don't, again, kind of embarrassing. It doesn't work that way. And when we imagine that this process that we are inhabiting or participating in is somehow separate from or removed from the world, is apart from everything else, There's something profoundly painful in that that drives us to seek, to understand why it is there is a sense of suffering or dissatisfaction in life, why there is a sense of emptiness or lack. And it's born out of a sense of feeling separate from life, of having believed the appearance that when we believe that appearance, we're driven, it seems, and compelled to have to act on all the fear that's about protecting me and equally about the desire which is getting for me what I want or what I need or what I think I should have or what I deserve, what everyone else has got and I want too. And in that, there's this sense of contraction of self which is ultimately no more than a kind of a calcified bundle of wanting and fear. That's what we find when we really look and see. There's all this wanting and fear that goes on inside. And yet, this is not ultimately who or what we are. It's what's going on. And it's what goes on 
when there isn't care and attention given to the experience, when there isn't the interest to look and to see and to understand what is the truth of this. To see ourselves as separate, as removed, as disconnected, as isolated, as separate from life. Is to be bound to an existential pain that is born out of the untruth of that view. Out of the way we hold ourselves apart from life. And life just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work that way. It's like this image that I really like. I first heard from a, uh, a friend and teacher, Ajahn Sachito, who's a, a Buddhist monk, an English Buddhist monk. And he described this scenario once, which is very apt. It's like going for an ocean voyage. And you're out there on the open seas in your little boat and there's the wind and the waves and the currents and you're sort of trying to steer this way and trying to go that way and sometimes the boat seems to go approximately where you want it to go and sometimes it seems to go quite the opposite way. Does that sound like anybody's life? You know? And um, certainly like mine. Um, And then after a while of doing this and the... The sailor decides maybe I need to check how it's working because you now I steer this way and sometimes it goes that way. And he, after this, sort of climbing down, having a look and seeing, huh, the steering wheel isn't connected to the rudder. It's like all the ideas we have about how it should be isn't connected to actually what's driving this, isn't connected to how it is. So far as we're operating from a view of self, of somehow being separate, independent, disconnected or apart. And there's something both compellingly attractive about this teaching in the sense of we can, we can sense, we can feel the potential for a profound relief and a deep healing in the sense of letting go of that separateness, that feeling of being isolated and apart, and looking out into the world as if across a chasm in which I am in here and everything else is out there. There's something attractive about it and there's also something quite scary. It's like there's also the sense of, but what does that mean for my existence? Does that mean annihilation? Is that the end of this that I call life? Am I about to somehow dissolve, disappear, and we might start to wonder whether we really want to go on with this practice or exploring spiritual teachings in this way. And yet, if we can just see this experience and start to question it, it's not like we have to form some conclusion. It's not like we're being asked to say, oh, well, I used to think there was a self or I was a self and therefore... Now I've heard the Buddhist teaching, I'll assume that there isn't one and you know, and I won't worry about exactly where the one that I thought I used to have is gone, which would get a little bit confusing after all. It's not about taking a different position, saying, well, I thought I was separate and now I'm not. Because the sense of I 
is following that whole conversation around, isn't it? I being separate is just as ludicrous as I being part of it all. What's the I? What's that sense of self? And what does it contribute to the process? It's not that it requires that we abandon any sense of respect and cherishing of this life, this body, this heart, this mind, which is crucial to the process. And yet seeing that it's not as we imagined it to be. Just allowing there to be a certain questioning, a little uncertainty, rather than forming another conclusion. Sometimes we can, just in simply sitting, walking, moving, in the yoga, in the meditation, through the day, we can start to sense that the way in which we see that seems to define our conventional, our ordinary, our agreed reality is not the entirety of what is to be seen or is not expressing the totality of our capacity for seeing. And that our perspective can shift remarkably. There's a, a story I, I love about a elderly master who lived in the hills in China long, long ago. And he would practice his meditation for long periods. He was a very committed and gentle being. And every week, about once a week, he would go down from the little cabin on the hill where he lived and he would just walk amongst the villages and beg for food to sustain him for another week. And he would take his food up to the cabin, the little hut in the hill, on the hill. And he would stay there for another week or two. And one day a delegation from the the local council, from the, the nearby town, was just doing a bit of a check around the villages and something of a census really. And they heard about this old man living up on the hill. And it didn't sound like he was engaged in any useful activity, which is what they were concerned about. So they thought they'd better go and check him out. And the, the delegation went up the hill, knocked on the door of the hut. There was no response. They knocked again. And then just pushed the door open and walked in. The leader and the two other members of the delegation, eyes wide open, suddenly there in this little simple hut was the old man, the long beard, grey hair, sitting cross-legged, completely naked. And the, and the leader of the delegation said, what's going on? What are you doing? What's happening? I demand to know. What are you doing sitting here in your hut with no pants on? <laughs> and the, old, the wise old man looked at him. He said, so you think that's what's happening, do you? Well, from where I'm sitting, it's rather different. From where I'm sitting, this whole world is my heart. This hut is my pants. And I want to know, what are you doing in my pants? 
Some prefer a looser fit. But that whole sense of, you know, where we make our home in life, when we pull it into just this, there's a way in which we feel the limitation of it, the painfulness of it, the the dissatisfaction of it. When we identify with this body-mind as being what and who we are, we are bound to the fate of this body and mind, which is to come to an end in time, as all things which have arisen come to a pass, come to ending, come to cessation. So far as we imagine that this is what we are, fear drives our life. And yet as we start to understand that this is only an expression of what we are, does not define or limit what is true, there's something possible for us to realize, to understand, to discover. If we let go of the sense of ownership of all of this, this body, these thoughts, these emotions, the past, the present, the future, if we don't conceive of this as what we are, and don't try and imagine ourselves as something else, but just allow that space of unknowing, of openness. Just allow ourselves to receive it. And of course, we can talk about ourselves from a practical point of view. It's useful to know, you know, when we're making a sandwich, whose mouth we're going to put it in. And from most points of view, it's probably better to put it in the one that's attached to your arm rather than the one that's attached to somebody else's because they might not like your sandwich. And so there's a certain conventional reality to all of that. Yeah, right now the role of this body, being, person, we could say, is to be speaking. And the role that someone else has is to be listening or maybe to be spacing out. That's allowed too. But whatever, that's what's happening. And yet, is that really what's happening? Is that all that's happening? What if we didn't know? What if we allowed ourselves to take the risk of being a little uncomfortable, a little unfamiliar with this? To not presume we know what it is that we might say this is or that we might say I am or you are, and not to presume we would know or could say what it is not, what we are not, but to be curious, to be innocent, to be unknowing in our encounter with life. And to allow the the simple experience of life itself to speak to us. To see that when we rest in the simple, naked, conscious awareness 
that is here, that is now, that is present to this, that isn't complicated or fabricated, but just effortlessly and unstoppably reveals life going on. When we rest in this, when we allow ourselves to rest in this, we can start to sense that what is most true, what we could say what we most truly are, is not defined or limited by our experiences, by what is going on within, or what is going on what we call outside. But that those two very ideas don't quite make the sense that they used to. Inside is affected by outside. Outside is affected by inside. How can we say that they're really two separate things if they're constantly interacting with each other, affecting each other, conditioned by each other as they are? And so letting go of all of this that moves, that flows, that changes. Letting go in the sense of not needing to mould or configure it to a particular shape. To fit in with our hopes or our expectations or to placate our fears or our needs. But just letting it be what it is. Letting life be as it is. And what is revealed is this. That is responsive to itself. Attuned. Resonating with itself. In itself. And of itself. And yet, which we can't point to or take hold of or defined in any way, which isn't the same as anything we can point to or take hold of or define, and yet equally isn't apart from anything we can define or point to or hold on to. And that expresses itself as a both a clarity, a simple knowing, and equally a profound, compassionate caring in and through which life flows and unfolds in the myriad ways that it does. And when we're not trying to take hold of anything to define ourselves or to find another. In the releasing and the resting of that urge and the relaxing of that urge to take hold of, what is cannot be obscured, cannot be missed. And so that's not something we have to find so much as 
learning to let go of that grasping and reactivity that obscures. And yet, even as we do that, and as we learn that, trusting. In that which we cannot know. With our minds, and yet can know. In the depths of our being. Ryokan, who was a Zen monk and poet and very delightful character, he said once, or wrote in a poem, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So may we all, through our practice and in our lives, see through and beyond the appearance of things and really come to understand the nature of life and all things within it, to know the truth that is unborn and unbound. for our own welfare and liberation, for the welfare and liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.